Welcome back to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Today, I'm joined by Champaign City Council member Matthew Gladney, who's now running to retain his at-large city council seat that he has held since 2015. Good afternoon, Matt. Good afternoon, Elizabeth. Thank you for having me back in your podcast. Great to have you here. Since you were born and raised in Champaign, you're a Champaign homeowner, you're an employee at the University of Illinois. Why does all of that give you the unique perspective to continue your work on the council? Well, I think it combines a lot of different aspects, I think, help give me a nice perspective. So yeah, born and raised here, seen the city you know, change and grow over the last nearly half century and experienced it as a child as well as an adult. And yeah, a homeowner, which I'll be honest with you, personally, I don't care if somebody's a homeowner or if they're a renter, but I can tell you that from experience, it seems to matter to at least a lot of voters if you're a homeowner. I pay property taxes and invested in the community. And as far as being an employee at the university, a lot of people are, but it is the largest employer that we have here in Champaign County. So I'm there every day, Monday through Friday. I work for the largest employer here. I'm a homeowner, born and raised here. I think it gives me an interesting perspective. And an advantage, we hope. Let's talk about your platform. The first item on your agenda is economic growth. What plans for the city that you have had a part of in economic growth are you most proud of? Well, a lot of them. I mean, we have a lot of partnerships with different local organizations that help boost economic growth. So we have the work we do with the Small Business Development Center, which is through the Economic Development Corporation. And so that helps small businesses. It kind of gives them advice, also some financial assistance. They might want to get off the ground and kind of, you know, if they're new to having their own business, kind of helps them with that. I think there's a new Justine Peterson group that's just located here within the last few months that also helps particularly like with small businesses kind of get off the ground. We've used tax increment finance districts to help get projects going in various areas that we want to focus on. Certain businesses to kind of hopefully start off and thrive. I know some folks have maybe differing opinions about TIF districts, but I think they have at least far downtown, particularly they have proved fruitful. Kind of the sister to that, we have enterprise zone incentives, which have helped. And we've also done some development programs for Campus Town and Downtown. We give money to the Champaign Center Partnership, which also works with Campus Town, Downtown, and Midtown businesses. That's economic development. Another thing that you're proud of and the community is proud of is our incredible diversity. How can we continue to develop a welcoming community for diversity? A lot of our diversity we, we have in this community, we owe to the University of Illinois being here. And so I think we continue a positive working relationship with them. You know, sometimes if they come to us and ask us for something, we always try to listen. And if we can, we try and help them out with that. So keeping the university strong, I think, will help us to attract a diverse pool of employees here. We also need to make sure we have a welcoming environment. So, you know, we have this area of our city staff that will hear any kind of concerns or grievances that let's say a community member might have about maybe how they were treated and we'll see if they're like you know part of a protected class and if so we'll try and work through that and see if that was something that did go on was like was discrimination and then we can work with them and the entity deemed to be discriminatory so in other words to work out something and hopefully you know people will continue to feel welcome here we also for the first time scored with a hundred percent on the human rights campaign's municipality index for, I would say, LGBTQ rights, but that's what the human rights campaign is all about. And they have a, an annual municipality index. And the highest score you can get is 100. And so it's, a lot of it is based on diversity and programs that we have that 
are there to make people feel more welcome. And one of the things that I worked on too, I think that helped boost our score was having a community police liaison for the LGBT community. So we did not have that before. And I think in my first term on council, when this municipality index came out, that's something we were dinged on. We didn't have a a liaison within the police department that could work with the LGBT community, you know, address any concerns they have, be kind of a point person that if they felt something was they needed to say go to the police about something, feeling discriminated against, or maybe it was a domestic issue and they weren't sure if they could feel comfortable going to the police, there would be this liaison with them that hopefully would make them feel comfortable, would listen to their concerns and would address their concerns and help them and through whatever process they needed to. So we now have that. We've actually been through three of them because I think the first two retired, but information about that is on the police website. So that's something that we have, and it's helped raise our HRC municipality index score. And I'm very proud that we have that. And I hope my fellow LGBTQ members know that it's there and that it's a resource they can utilize. Another way that people want to feel safe in this community is gun violence. And I know you've heard this as you knock on doors. We've done a lot by investing in the Lift Champagne program with Unit 4, We've supported the police department, firefighters. How can we help reduce the gun violence that we're seeing prevalent right now? I think part of it is just vigilance, you know, you know keeping keep an eye out for your neighborhood, for your neighbors, and reporting things that you see happen. And this is something I know is difficult, but it's something I, I've heard a lot about from our police particularly, but even some people like when I've talked to folks in neighborhood meetings, like the police sometimes say like, well, nobody will talk to us. Like something went down a house here in a the neighborhood, they've been trying to canvas and get information and people don't want to give up, give info. Part of me is like, well, I understand. I mean, maybe you're scared, right? Maybe you don't want to become a target yourself, or maybe you know the people involved and you feel some sort of loyalty to one or them or more of them. But the, the fact of the matter is, I mean, when these crimes are committed, when violence like this occurs and people are either injured or killed, or there's the threat of injury or, or death, Part of helping stop that is being able to, willing to come forward and provide any information you can. That's a way to do that. I know something else the police have mentioned is if people have cameras on their house. And I can tell you, particularly going door to door and talking to folks, I've seen this a lot where people have cameras set up at their houses or they have motion detectors that go off. And so sometimes they have recordings of things, of crimes. And so I know that some folks have been very forthcoming with providing the police with snippets of those recordings that are germane to an investigation the police are doing about about a crime that occurred there. So that's been helpful as well. The fourth tenant of your plan is about infrastructure. And you say, quote, good roads, safe sidewalks, street lights, and ease of transportation is what makes Champaign a desirable and comfortable place to live and work. You want to continue this work being done in Garden Hills right now. What other underserved communities should receive attention, construction, money? A lot. <laughs> I'll start with that. So a lot of neighborhoods here do not have streetlights or sidewalks. I actually live in a neighborhood that does not have streetlights or sidewalks. I would say a vast majority of them would probably like them. It's very interesting. The street that my, my mom lived on for many years here, they would have block parties. And I went to one of them one time and we were just kind of all sitting out there in the street on lawn chairs, talking and socializing. And the topic of streetlights came up and I just kind of said, hey, I'm sure you guys would love those here. And they said, no. They said they like it dark. There are some neighborhoods, I guess, maybe that are like that, but the vast majority of neighborhoods that I've heard from who do not have streetlights would like them. And that unfortunately just comes from prior development history. If a neighborhood was developed outside of city limits and then incorporated later on, I mean, we think of it today as this being part of the city, but maybe it wasn't at one point. 
they developed without that. That's a big thing that was important to me when I got on council initially back in 2015, just as a citizen. Because one thing I noticed is, you know what, I like to go walking a lot around the city. Sidewalks just kind of begin and end randomly. Again, some of that I think is due to development patterns. And yeah, sometimes there's no streetlights. You'll go from a neighborhood that has streetlights and all of a sudden there's none. And I know I was talking with somebody today that talked about they wish there were streetlights in their neighborhood, just for safety reasons. And I've actually tripped and fallen on an uneven sidewalk. So sometimes we do have sidewalks, but they need to be maintained better. So when I got on council in 2015, that was something I really wanted to address. And like I said, we have been addressing that with Garden Hill. We've actually devoted a lot of our ARPA funds, American Recovery Plan funds, to boosting Garden Hills with detention basin that we'll build and putting in street lights and putting in sidewalks. That costs a lot of money. I mean, that's millions of dollars we're doing just for Garden Hills. So that's the frustrating part about that is how do we add that in there and, and where do we get the funds from? Because that ARPA funds were kind of a one-time thing. So we have to find ways to be able to afford it, but I think it's worthwhile. We found ways to help our infrastructure as well in things like the John Street Watershed Project and then the West Washington Detention Basin, which I've heard good feedback about those projects from folks as well. We can find ways to fund these things. It's just a matter of kind of laying it out and finding which area to work on next, how much that'll cost, making sure the people there want us to do that and are willing to put up with the disruption it'll cause to their neighborhoods while we're doing it. I read a book one time about 30 years ago when it came out, it's called The Children of Men. It was by my favorite author, who's uh, P.D. James. And they made a movie out of it about 15 years ago. And the movie's good, but the movie is a little bit more, I don't know, because it's a movie, it's a little bit more action-oriented, a little less philosophical. By nature, the book is a little bit more philosophical. And anyway, I bring that up because... The plot of that book is set in the future. Actually, I think it's set just a couple of years from now. And for like a generation now, like nobody has been born. There've been no human beings that have been born. And they don't know why it's just a, births just all of a sudden stopped. And the impact that that had on society was something that, that the book explored and I had never thought about before. But I was in my teens when I read that for the first time. And it made such a huge impact on me that I can carry with me today, which is the things that we do, like a lot of projects we undertake are not for now, they're for later. Because in that book, they weren't building any new buildings. They weren't going through any huge infrastructure projects to like, you know, put in streetlights or put in sidewalks or worry about detention basins because a generation had gone by without any new humans. So their thought process at that point was like, well, we're just going to die out. So what's the point? That really made me think almost everything that we do seems to be not for now, but for later. It's for future generations. And yeah, it's for us too, who are here now. And I thought about that when you know I went to the unveiling of the new Champaign Public Library that opened, I guess now it's about 15 years ago. But when I walked in that building, I thought of the children of men and I thought like, this is a great building and a lot of people who are here now are going to enjoy it. But this building is really more for people who probably haven't even been born yet. That's a lot of our projects. Now, the problem is that's really great philosophy, but in my role as a city council member, I can't just do things for the future. I have to do things for people who are here now. That's part and parcel of being an elected official is having a long-term vision, but also having to think of the here and now and do what we can more immediately.
Your vision obviously resonates with the voters so far and with your fellow elected officials. You have impressive endorsements. Let's go through a couple of them. State Senator Paul Faraci, Champaign Mayor Deb Frank Finan, Champaign City Council members Daniel Iniguez and Vanna Pianfetti, and of course Andy Kornstrom, City of Champaign Township Supervisor, to name a few. Why do you think your message and your actions and just your demeanor resonates with other elected officials and voters in this community? I have to say it's really difficult talking about something like that. I worry I come across just egotistical with some kind of answer to that. I know, but I asked and it's just a question. True, true. Well, first of all, I think all of the people you mentioned are people that I have worked with in my city council capacity. So Paul Faraci, he is a state senator now. But, you know, when I first got on council, I served on council with him for my first two years. He was the District 5 representative. So I, you know, I built up that working relationship with Paul. Obviously, I've worked with the mayor, Deb Finan, and Daniel Niguez and Vanipi and Fetty. And then, of course, I've worked with Andy Kornstrom in his role as township supervisor because we on city council also serve as township board members. So I think I've had good working relationships with all of the, the aforementioned people. I think a lot of that is demeanor. I try to be very thoughtful with my votes and the issues that come before us. And sometimes to the point where it gets kind of stressful and I might lose sleep, but because I know that a lot of the decisions we make impact people's lives and their quality of life. And so I try and give a lot of thought to that. And I think people appreciate that. And also particularly with these people that I've worked with in a political capacity, I think they appreciate my demeanor, which is I can be passionate about an issue and I can advocate for it and I can listen to people on all sides about it, but eventually I have to make a vote, as do the other folks on council. And I try not to hold it against them. And I think that's the nature of politics is, you know, you certainly see things that you want to have succeed. Every now and then there's something you don't want to succeed, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, it's like, you know, or you should know, not everything you want to have happen is going to have happen. And I think if you do this job, you have to learn to be okay with that and kind of roll with the punches. And I think that's something that I've just kind of taken in as part of my personality while doing this. And I think people appreciate it. I don't really hold grudges because ultimately I have to work with folks. So if something does come up down the road that I want people's support on, we have a good working relationship and hopefully I can talk with them and you know, we can get something done. Even the title of your day job makes you the perfect public servant. You spend your day as a benefits counselor. Both of those words are something that you do to better somebody or the community. What exactly do you do during the day? I think it's a very aptly titled job. So yeah, I work at the University of Illinois in the payroll and benefits office. It's payroll and benefits for university employees. I focus a little bit more on the benefits side of it, but yeah, I shepherd and counsel people on their benefits at various stages from when they start at the university. I sometimes give benefit overview uh, webinars for new employees that it's like at least two hours long and it goes over all the benefits that are available to them. If they have follow-up questions and contact the office, I'll work with them then. And then while they're at the university as regular employees, if they contact our office, I can give them counseling on and answers to questions they have about benefits. And then when people are getting ready to leave, either just they're just leaving to go somewhere else or they're retiring, I have a role in kind of working with folks on sort of their exit. Here's when your benefits will end. Here's when you'll get your vacation payout. Here's, you know, if you want to like defer to that part of that, you can do it. And here's how to do that. Those sort of things. So 
I am a benefits counselor. I want to ask your advice, not as my council member, but in our last interview, you talked about your phobia, flying. We bonded over that. I still haven't been on an airplane in I don't know how long. You went to London. How did that happen? Uh, some friends of ours asked us to go with them. I'm very much afraid of flying. Not as much as I was. I will say that uh, after having done it. But I flew for the first time back in 1991. So it had been 31 years since I had flown. I suffer from claustrophobia as well. So this is the thought of it. I'm like, so, you know, up there in the air, thousands of feet in the air and potential of a crash. And the fact that uh, I'm going to be in this cylinder <laughs> and I have claustrophobia, I'm like, I don't see any way that that'll work. But I've been an Anglophile for as long as I can remember. I, I love reading British novels and watching British TV shows and British films. And our friends were going, they actually had been there before. So we would be going, my partner and I would be going with experienced people and they were like our best friends. So I figured, you know, I don't know if this is ever going to happen. So all of those things kind of coalesced uh, and I went and I, I will say though, I went to my doctor and I got a prescription for lorazepam. <laughs> so I took a couple of those before I got on each flight and that helped, I'm sure. It was worth it. Okay. I just wanted a little advice. Before I let you go, Matthew, I have to ask, can you walk me through a little bit of your internal dialogue when people that you don't agree with are standing at a mic in front of the council, you have to fix your face and you can't react. What are you thinking in your head? Because you are there to support all constituents, even the ones you don't agree with. It kind of depends. I'll be honest with you. For the most part, it's not what they're saying. Because again, I mean, I understand there's a lot of people in the world and they're all not going to agree with me. So if someone just comes to council and is up there, as I say, it's a hot button issue and they're giving their opinion for public, during public comment, if they're saying something that I might not personally agree with, that doesn't bother me. Now, what bothers me sometimes is when people are shouting and screaming and being really physically aggressive, which has happened at our council meetings, that is concerning. And, you know, I, I'm a human being and, and my initial reaction to that is to be a little internally incensed, I guess, and to have a little bit of anger start to well up. The method I have for kind of quelling that is to just understand that they're also human beings. And even though I don't appreciate how they're acting, the fact that they're acting that way means that this is something that has got them really impassioned. This is something that obviously means a lot to them. I wish you weren't acting this way, but this is obviously important to you. So I need to give you at least that with respect of, of hearing you out. And that usually calms me down. Yeah, I try to keep a keep an even face, you know, whatever's happening. I'm not always successful, but that's the thing. I mean, you know, we no one's forcing us to be in elected office. We choose to run for it and, and serve if we're elected. So there's some things that come with that, right? And sometimes it means we get yelled at. And that's also something else I keep in my mind. It's like, well, yeah, it would be nice if people didn't sometimes yell at us or whatever. But hey, unfortunately, or that's part of what we signed up for. Thank you for listening to I Have to Ask with Elizabeth Hess, part of the Champagne Showers Podcast Network. Champagne City Council Member at Large, Matthew Gladney, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's been nice talking with you.